welcome back to an early morning record of the latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm still asleep. Oh, hello, still asleep. Yes, I'll be replacing Lemuel today. <laughs> this week, we are going to have a long discussion about long. the Green Mile. That is a... Um, a prediction. We have not recorded it yet, but keep your this fingers movie crossed. Is long, this and we hours. will have uh, plenty to say about it. But before we get started, how was your week? Well, um, I didn't sleep enough. Climaxed by not sleeping. However, Woo-hoo. I am doing well. How was your week? It's good. Uh, it's weird to be recording in the morning. Yes, it is. It's too much light. So much of our day is left to come. This is yes. usually the last thing I do and then sleeps. Not today. Not today. Today, it'll be this and then bad boys. <laughs> so. yeah, I even forgot what we were seeing today. That's puzzling. Although it turns out Birds of Prey is going to have a very low opening week because trolls are terrible, so we should maybe go see that pretty trolls soon. Trolls are terrible? Uh-huh. Trolls was a terrible movie. Trolls it 2 was, was worse. It was not a terrible movie, and Trolls 2 hasn't come out. Oh, do you mean the original Trolls? Yes. I, was, I thought you meant the kids' movies. Oh, I'm God, like, no. I can't imagine that would be any better. So it, there, there's been issues with Birds of Prey? Uh, yeah, there, it's on track to have the lowest DC opening. Because ladies can't helm a movie, and so Trolls come out in force to say that I don't understand exactly why it's so important to do to, to But I saw a... Our article that said how Birds of Prey went full John Wick, and I was like, ooh, I'm okay, in. There we are. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes, but we're going to have to go see that pretty soon. In the meantime, we mm-hmm. have watched a movie that came out a long time ago, many moons ago. <sighs> Not that many. Uh, 1998 uh-huh. is <laughs> 22 moons. <laughs> well, times 12. 22 times 12 <laughs> moons. Uh, and this movie came out in 1998. In theaters as one piece, unlike the book, which came out in supermarkets. Yeah, it was in serialized, many right? Yeah, yes. Okay. Uh, but you can now buy the entirety of the thing. But it was released in parts Okay. Uh, when it came out originally. And this, so let's get into, yeah, we're going to we're gonna do the synopsis. Let's do an overview. The overview is a magical Negro changes the life of a white security guard in prison in Louisiana in 1935. Uh, and beyond. And beyond. There's also a mouse involved. Also a mouse. Mr. Jingles. Uh, okay. First up, I want to say that this movie's uh, view of race on death row, even in 1935, is skewed heavily white. Uh, we do have two people of color on the row at different points. Uh-huh. That's probably not enough for as many people as were on the row in total. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see... Is it just two other? Let me think. We only see four criminals four on the row. Four criminals on the, the row. Time. I know there's more in the, the, the serial or the yes. book adaptation. There's... Yeah. Um, there's characters, but uh, we don't really get the backstories of them either. So that's true. Um, right. So yeah. So in this, on the death row, we see we have four different care, different uh, criminals at the at a time or through the time, mm-hmm. and that, uh, and we'll go through each of them. But two of them are white, and uh, I'm pretty sure anywhere at any time that is going to be somewhere skewed. in the south, especially. Well, right? especially yes. So mm-hmm. we're in Louisiana. Well, well let's start. 
not mm-hmm. in Louisiana. Actually, I don't know where we start. <laughs> I don't, we don't know where it is. Uh, we start, we open actually back in Louisiana. A group of people running through a field of wheat, frantically searching for someone. Uh, and there's a voiceover that says, you love your sister, you make any noise, you know what happens. Uh, in this scene, we get our first glimpse of William Sadler, who we saw as a prisoner in Shawshank Redemption, and mm-hmm. who I remembered to be a a uh, warden in this film. I remembered him correctly. <laughs> he is, in fact, the father of these two uh, victims. We then move to uh, an old man in a retirement center. His name is Paul Edgecombe, and he's played by Dabs Greer, who is a man that I didn't know, but made this frame narrative tough for you. It made it difficult. He was the reverend in Little House on the Prairie for years and years and years. So it's one of those cases where an actor is very familiar to you. Right. And it's hard to divorce them because you're... you're I've, I am aware that he did westerns and things before that, but I was most strongly associated with him through my childhood in the, that part. So it became, oh, it's the the reverend. Like, no, it's not. Yeah. So he wakes up in the morning, and he is in a retirement community, but it's independent living. It looks looks pretty good. He goes out, uh, gets two dry pieces of toast from an orderly uh, who is like, hey, I know you're going to just wander off and and go on your walks. Could you please be careful so you don't fall and break a hip? Okay, thanks. Bye. And he does, in fact, wander off into... Uh, a little shack in the woods, but like way up on a hill, it mm-hmm. appears that he walks for a very long time uh, and then comes back at night. And then they're having a movie night and we see Fred Astaire dancing uh, to the song Heaven. What is the movie? And he is very upset. And his friend, Elaine, sees he's upset and they go and have a conversation uh, wherein Paul talks about how he was a prison guard during the Depression, and he was in charge of death row, uh, which they called the Green Mile. A lot of death rows are called the Last Mile. They Uh called it the Green Mile because the linoleum was green uh, on the floor. And he says, you know, the, the biggest year for me there was 1935. And he opens with, I had the worst UTI of my life. (laughs) And I'm just like, Ooh, that's a lot of information about your genitals, Mr. Edgecombe. <laughs> and then... But, you know, I felt that was appropriate because we are talking about older people. Yes. And if you spend any time with elderly people... A the, UTI is... Their biological functions have become the topic of conversation. Yeah, no, I'm not right. regular. But it I'm also sort of shows the uh-huh. closeness of these people. Yes. Right? Like... um yeah, you don't usually talk about your junk with somebody who's never talked, never in- been involved with your junk <laughs> like that. Well, we don't know. These two are awfully close and spend a lot of time together. They definitely are boning down. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we know. We know. Trust me. We know. <laughs> Elaine is getting it. <laughs> um, and so then we go, doodly, 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 doodly. And then we're in 1935, and we see Tom Hanks trying to be <laughs> now. Tom Hanks has a this record. This is a of, very visceral thing, yes. I, I should say. It's Tom Hanks has a record can't. of urinating in his movies. Oh, really? Tell me yes. more. That's just that. Just that. I will. I'll maybe. There's a. Um, I'm sure that YouTube has a clip of all of the times that Tom Hanks has peed in a movie. I promise you that this is a thing. I promise because YouTube has a clip of everything. <laughs> so. Uh, He's trying to pee. It hurts very badly, like razor blades. Not great. Uh, I don't like that picture. Just nope. cost me legs. But also, 
If you've ever had a UTI, that is real. Uh, and we are in Louisiana State Prison. Uh, and the we meet Paul Edgecombe, and we also meet um, three, four other guards. Mm, brutal Howell, Howell. Brutal. He's His name is Brutus, but he goes by Brutal. He is David Morse. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Why would you name your child Brutus? Uh, because it's 19... Hundred. I mean, <laughs> you don't know any better. I just, you aren't reading Julius Caesar on the right. I guess. Well, Brutus is is meant to be a very noble Roman, but he also makes a horrible mistake. So it's one of those. What, for instance, uh, it's a cute millennial named name your kid Pandora. I thought that's Delilah is very Deli- popular. Oh too. God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> your kid's a whore. So but, hey, <laughs> let's not do that. Well, Delilah was. She that's took fine. Money for sex. <laughs> she was a sex worker, like many women have been through history. I know, but she. Oh, I'm well, going to say a woman of every name no, throughout history. There's more of the story. A sex so worker. We won't address that. She does something really bad. That's fine. It doesn't have to do with her being a sex worker. Let's not shame sex work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then we see uh, Dean Stanton is Barry Pepper's character's name. Uh-huh. And I had a problem because I was like, it's Skeet Witch. It's not Skeet Witch. Skeet Witch is the knockoff Johnny Depp. Barry Pepper is the knockoff Skeet Witch. So, wait, so Dean Stanton, there's a character named Dean Stanton. Yes, and then <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton appears in the film playing <laughs> yes. another character. Yes. All right. That is correct. So that, that means happened. that Stephen King, in creating a character named Dean Stanton, was casting... His he might have been story. the character may not be named Dean Stanton. Okay, in the book I'm just either, curious because I know that it is that sounds weird. like something he would do. Yeah, it is odd. Harry Terwilliger is played by Jeffrey Demun, and we've seen him. Yes, I like Jeffrey Demun very much. A bunch, and Percy Wetmore played by Doug Hutchison, who is not a good person in the movie. <laughs> And not a good person in life. Well, look, now you're making judgments. <laughs> I am making judgments. So they're bringing in a new inmate. Um, I think it's uh, Harry who's looking out at the thing. Like, they're riding on the axle. Did they, did the, is the truck broken? Uh-huh. And then a, an inmate steps off the truck, and the truck just bounces up. And it is our the hero of our story. Uh, he's a ginormous black man. Uh, now, how big is he supposed to be? Uh, I don't know the answer I think to that. it's approaching seven feet is what I'm, my understanding is, right? I would think over even. Let me see. I will look him up on the Stephen King wiki. 6'8". Six, 6'8". Eight. Six, eight. John Coffey, an African-American man, approximately 6'8", with powerful muscular frame. Yeah. So, John Coffey... Mm-hmm. Is played by Michael Clark Duncan, who this is basically his first his first film appearance, major film appearance. I'm looking him up. It was his breakout role. He'd been in a couple of other things before. Um, uh, oh, he was in Armageddon before this. He's six foot five. Mm-hmm. They make him look bigger. They make him. Well, everyone in this cast is very tall. Tom yes. Hanks is. David Morse is. Yeah. So, um, the warden. Uh, James Cromwell. Who's also very tall. Also very tall. He's like 6'5. So, th- there had to be some sort of exaggeration. It, um, 
in many ways, of course, it's meant to remind you of Lenny and For Mice and Men, but yeah. also in that in that film, there's a constant kind of push to have him standing on ramps and things to appear yeah. taller in the group with these very yeah, tall there, people. Yeah, he's definitely filmed so that he is at least a foot and a half taller mm-hmm. than all right. of these other men, making the other men appear smaller, right? Uh, like of average height rather than yeah, all a bunch of six twos and six threes right. across the board, and then just making him seem even more sort of uh, larger than life. He. Paul talks to John Coffey when he gets the thing. John apologizes. He says he tries to take it back, but it was too late. Uh, And then he says, do you leave the lights on because I'm afraid of the dark at night? And Paul is like, what did this dude do? Like, what is happening? Now, while he was being brought in, Percy, mm, Percy, is shouting as he's leading this this prisoner across the yard, dead mm-hmm. man walking, dead man, dead man walking, because he's an asshole. And so Paul goes to talk to the person. He's like, you got to chill out. Like, our job is actually to keep these men calm. Mm-hmm. They're all going to die. We don't need to make it worse for them. Paul really does feel like they're paying their debt to society. They don't need to be tortured on the way to do that right uh but percy's a sadist and stupid so it's a cool combination of traits well, yes he's stupid he's malicious and he's also entitled in a way because he has political yes. connections that keep him his void wherever he is aunt is the wife of the governor it's a mm. it's a it's a weird connection, but so he could have any state job that he wants. And, uh, you know, as he's sort of been told off by Paul and is, is sort of sent away to do work elsewhere, uh, one of the other convicts, uh, Edward Del, Delacroix, Delacroix. Uh, played by Delacroix, played by Michael Jeter, is sort of mocking him. And Percy hits him in the hand with his uh, nightstick. His hand is outside right. the bars of the thing, and he ends up breaking three of Dell's fingers, which he gets no, there's no ramifications for him. No. He gets there doesn't there seem no to be that there's no consequences for any of what they do there. They're sort of a force to their own, and nobody wants to deal with them. Yeah. And it gives the impression that they're a pariah among the other uh, yeah. guards as well. Yeah. Nobody likes him. They don't want him there. They may, He makes them all uncomfortable. He doesn't mm-hmm. try to be friends with any of them because he does have this sort of air of right. you know, I get to do whatever the fuck I want, which nobody wants to work with a dude who's right. like, yeah. I can do whatever the fuck I want. Paul is given a copy of, of John's records and finds that he was sent to being death row after convicted being convicted of the murder and implied rape of two small girls. Uh, after the girls went missing, that posse that we saw at the beginning of the film went looking for them and found him crying uncontrollably, holding the two of them like in like the shallow water, like it looked like right in like, like in a, a creek or something. Right. Uh, and he was apologizing and saying he tried to take it back, but it was too late. It was too late. It couldn't do it. So, which. Uh, Isn't an admission of guilt. It's not an admission of guilt, but sounds like an admission mm-hmm. of guilt. So then we are outside and we meet the warden, as you mentioned before. That's Hal Moore, played by James Cromwell. The cast in this movie is so He's exceptional. great. And Hal is robumped out and Paul asks after his wife and um, 
she's been getting headaches and they're going to get an x-ray, a head x-ray, which is definitely going to help because (laughs) x-rays in 1935 definitely didn't give cancer. Nope, didn't do it. Uh, And then he is given the execution date for one of the inmates. And that inmate is Arlen Bitterbuck, played by Graham Greene. He has one scene where he talks in this movie and a lot of scenes where we just look at his sad face. (laughs) And you are, Stephanie had said this is a, there's no reason for it to be him other than a callback to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Well, there could be. Um, (laughs) Just the idea of having the Indian as the character, uh, the Indian, being, not being dismissive, A, because I am Indian, and B, because the character is referred to as the Indian in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I think it was a really good choice because this particular actor has an incredibly expressive face. Face, yeah. He doesn't really need to say much of anything. anything yeah. And on the one hand, that does play into the sort of stereotype about silent Indians, but on the other hand, it does make it very effective when he does speak. Yeah, yes. Um, and then Paul is like, hey, can we do something about Percy? Because he's stupid and mean. And Hal is like, like it or not, the wife of the governor has Mm. but one nephew and that nephew was Percy Uh, but I heard that he put in for an admin job at the mental hospital Briar Mm. Ridge now that's held out like a carrot yeah through the course of this movie. Yes, so he's put in, it'll be more money and, you know, less actual work, right? And administrate, he's pushing papers at that point Um, but everyone kind of thinks he wants to see an execution because he's a fucking asshole. Now, this is something that (laughs) I have to say about this film. Uh, In place, uh, we made the the joke um, a few episodes ago about the fellowship of uh, greasers or something. These Mm -hmm. sort of half villains that aren't really detestable and they're not really creepy or scary in any way that populate a lot of Stephen King's work. But yeah. I would have to say this is an actual turn where the people here are, are real sadists. They are dangerous, horrible yes. people. It's no longer uh, a sexually frustrated teenager. No, it's no longer you know. And although they still don't have, they still don't uh-huh. have a lot of motivation, which was my always my issue uh-huh. with those. Like, why are you being an asshole? Right. Like, I think what we when we uh, saw sometimes they come back. There was, why the hell yeah, are you why? so mean? What is your fucking problem? Right. <laughs> or, or in it, why do you have to carve your initials into somebody? Yes. What's, why do you do that? Well, uh, but, abuse at home turns right. out to be mostly the answer. <laughs> but when you're watching this film, you get the sense, because it's already uh, uh, presumed that they've done bad things. Yes. By the time they get there. Although some of them, like Mr. Bitterbuck, probably should not be in prison at all. Well... His, you looked it up, right? I looked it up, and this was a, a fight that ended in the death of a man over a pair of boots. And so th- this and uh, Mr. Delacroix's uh, crimes are not we ever don't, We're never discussed. We, they, there is a presumption of guilt, uh-huh. and um, both of those characters do seem to regret their prior actions, whatever they right. were, and are content with their sentence. I don't think it would have hurt to tell Bitterbuck's story. Because that all, that sounds like a survival from mm-hmm. a marginalized person. Except if you don't want to have a conversation right. in your movie be about, well, it is later anyways, be about the applicability of the death right. penalty. And, I, I oh, and they is, do end up bringing mm-hmm. that around as a, as a theme to the film. So I went to a fine. lecture for, uh, it was given by Sister Helen Prejean. Mm-hmm. And uh, she mentioned Speaking how... Speaking of dead men walking. Right. <laughs> And she mentioned how she never wants to know what what they did. They did because she said that will color 
And that was right. a decision that she made later on. Obviously, the first case that she took, which was the focus of the film, Dead Man Walking, right. she fully knew what the guy did. So that's the thing. It's right. like, I don't believe in the death penalty. If, uh-huh. that is your, if, your, if your point of view is, I don't believe in the death penalty, mm-hmm. regardless of what heinous things were done, right. hearing those heinous things can make you feel like that person deserves to right, die. Right, exactly, like, which is why she, she stopped listening you, to the story. If you, especially if... Children are right. involved. Like that's that's my trigger. I'm just like, oh no, this month right. I I am still against the death penalty yes. because we're wrong way too often. Well, yes, and so, it's applied so unevenly. There mm-hmm. are any number of innocent people. Yeah, that's the other thing is killed. everybody who did this crime right. under these circumstances is not treated the same way. Right. It's just not. And so, also the idea that there are people, as another film that we saw just a few weeks ago. Just Mercy? Just Mercy. There was a person on death row for absolutely, absolutely no reason. Yeah. yeah and they, and for every one, for, what is it, for every nine people that have been executed, one has been exonerated. Yeah. That's too many wrongs. That's too many. We've done it wrong too many times. And so we cannot be trusted. And when I identified as a pagan who uh-huh. believed in reincarnation, and I still kind of believe in reincarnation, uh-huh. I was like, well, if we get it wrong, they'll just come back better. And I'm like, well, that's a real <laughs> narrow, like, even now looking at that, I'm like, well, that's a privileged position because you believe that's what's going to happen. That's right. not necessarily <laughs> what's going to happen. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting, <laughs> pagans and Christians coming together. And, and why it's like not um, okay to torture somebody in this life. Right. Well, the reason Even that, if we're wrong because right. it'll be better later, like, that's not... What was well, I the, thinking? I the was reason a child. I brought it up is that we learn in, or the, rather in the book, Mr. Delacroix, yeah. his crime was rape and murder. Okay. And so it's. Which, I, when you see this character, you can't even right. picture that as a. Thing. And so, in reading more about it, several critics mentioned, or critics, or people who are familiar with the, the, the canon, the King canon. Uh, said that it was probably a better idea not to mention it here because that would have colored the audience given you don't have pages and pages and pages to understand a person's motivation. Right. You just have, right. he raped somebody, he killed them by accident when they began making noise, and he set fire to cover it up, and that fire killed more people. Oh, hell. And so okay. it just becomes, which is a running theme yeah. in Stephen King's fiction, people dying in fires. Well, maybe he's afraid of fire. Uh, that, fire that is not, a, th- not no. a thing to take lightly. I, no, it's it a is not perfectly no, reasonable thing to be We've both of. known people, I think, who suffered from that. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, so... That was his crime, Mr. Bitterbuck. Okay. But so, it doesn't seem like enough to put him here. It seems like it's one of those unleavenly applied situations. But yeah, but. right. And the, he is a Native American man. Right. Uh, in, the, in the movie, he is Graham Greene, and he is right. a Native Good American casting, man. Good casting, like, Native American man. <laughs> um, so the next day, we get a little bit of levity, because uh, Brutal spots a mouse, and it runs into this little room that they call the restraint room, and they open it up, and they have not restrained somebody in a long time. No. It's just storage. <laughs> and so they're like, okay, well, he's going to eat all the padding. So this is a padded right. room. It's a padded room. They're like, he's going to eat all the padding, so we Which need to... Which gives you the idea of how well they do their job, and that they haven't had to use the restraint room for a in very long however time. however long, right, because their job is to keep these men right. calm. That is how Paul runs... And that's Paul's leadership. The Yes. Uh and the the fact that they've hired pretty chill other than Percy, all of these guards are like chill. Right. Way chiller than you see oh, prison guards typically. They have their issues. <laughs> they do, they all do, but, and that's fine. But, but they're, they're not excitable. Right. They're not the coolers. 
you know, they look at the inmates as human beings. Mm-hmm. They treat them as such. Yeah. So um, they pull all of the the uh, furniture out, and it takes them a while. And mm-hmm. it is Louisiana summer, so they are sweating at this point. Um, and then the room is empty, and the mouse is not there. Uh, Dean Stanton's character has been standing at the doorway with a broom, and Paul's like, you let him get by you. And he goes, I did not. And I'm like, no, the, he went in probably between. Underneath, maybe? Yeah, underneath. Underneath the petting. Uh, mice is, can flatten themselves right. to a sort of a sickening <laughs> amount. So he just went through a wall. I think the, the yeah, I got the impression this the, the padding is not, Flush against the wall and it got underneath it yeah, somehow. Yeah. So Percy, oh, a few hours later, Percy's there and he sees the mouse. Um, and they have re-put everything back away. Everything was just, and they're playing cards or something. Mm-hmm. And Percy sees the mouse and he flies like sort of into this weird rage. And he chases it and it runs under the door into the same room again. And He's like, give me the key. And he opens it up and like in this fever, he is moving furniture because he's going to squish it. Like right. he wants to squish it. Uh, and uh, they're like, they don't even bother telling him they just did right. this. They're like, fuck it. Let him tire himself out. Like, that's fine. They get everything out. And... uh the mouse is gone. And then pers- uh, Paul uh, sort of has another conversation with Percy that's like, you need to stop scaring the inmates. We need to keep, they're under strain enough. They all know they're about to die. Right. You need to calm the fuck down. What you need to do in a Bring situation like that. Bring some chill into this. <laughs> if these people know that they're going to die, they have absolutely nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Now, for the most part, they're repentant, which is right. why when we get somebody later on, who, who is it? not, and <laughs> yeah. just realizes there are no consequences because the worst thing that can happen to me is going to happen to me. Yeah. Um, he turns out to be a really, a, really a dick, and he gets motivated by Yes, yes, Percy, they, but, they feed off of each right, other. But anyhow, Their energies feed off of each other. And uh, <clears throat> Percy's like, you know, if anybody does anything to me, I'm going to use my connections to get them right. fired. And Paul's like, uh, make another threat. We're all bigger and stronger than you, so we will kick your ass, even mm-hmm. if it means our jobs, because we're not going to fucking put up with it for too long. You're too much of a dick. <laughs> That's something i got to tell you, because, again, I think of his association with old movies, with older movies. Remember Elisha Cook from Salem's Lot, a little guy who was married to the woman who ran the boarding house? And there was a little tiny actor, and he's I don't, alcoholic. I don't remember. Because this oh. is the part he would play 40 years ago. Oh, Okay. This the is Percy the, car- character? Yeah, this okay. would be the kind of little squirt. Okay, the, yes. The big mouth who's yeah. who's nasty and always saying somebody can bail him out and I got friends. That's exactly the part that he used to play in movies. Gotcha. Who's in the Maltese Falcon? Yeah, he is. Uh, born in San Francisco. Local boy. Makes good. We go through our first dry run uh-huh. of an execution. So Arlen Bitterbuck is taken off, and when they do these dry runs, they take the uh, the inmate in question off the 
block. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't know what's going on. Uh, And he is taken, he gets to go see his family. And so they do a rehearsal through. And they use Harry Dean Stanton, who is the janitor, the elderly janitor of the prison. My guess is he's also an inmate, like a lifer. Mm -hmm. That's typically how, you know, prisons get their workers. He... (laughs) He's cracking jokes the whole way. Like, walking death row, walking death, like, ooh, we gonna, like, right. he's just doing a lot. And so... He goes through every phase of it with a different routine. Yes. And it's cracking Paul everyone instructs up. Percy, he's standing mm-hmm. behind this wall uh, that separates the main room where Old Sparky, the mm-hmm. electric chair, that is how they uh, murder people in Louisiana, is sitting. There's like a protective wall with a window behind which the switch Mm -hmm. is uh and he says go stand back there and watch and they go through it brutal wets the sponge Mm -hmm. that's the important part y'all they wet a sponge and put it on the top of the head right which has been shaved um and that it sits between that and the bowl that conducts the electricity so that the electricity goes straight to the brain, and rather than just milly-milly. You said protective wall, but uh, I get the impression also it's there so that the person in the chair doesn't have to see the switch being pulled. I think that's right. Right. Yeah, I, just, think, mm-hmm. I think it's a protection yeah. for everybody involved. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I do. And, um, you know, Percy says also why... it's separated by glass like it is now. People are sitting in the room. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we're going to get to that. Because we're not there yet. Because right yeah. now there's, like, tractors and shit right. in the room along with them. And uh, the guy that throws the switch um, on roll-on two, that mm-hmm. is what the the, uh, the go signal is, he says, you never want to do it without the sponge. You wouldn't want to see what happens. Like, because Percy's like, what's that about? As, you know, ele- fake electricity is passed through his body, Toots is making jokes, and Paul stops him and he's like, you guys, you can't. Because You'll when this that. is happening for real... You're going to remember what's happening now. And you're go- you ever tried to not laugh in church? You're right. <laughs> like, Which I think is a great parallel. And I, we can't do that. I have been there trying yeah. not to laugh in church, and it just makes everything much, much worse. So he's like, we need to be solemn now so that we can be solemn later. Because we, uh, this is a stressful thing. Nobody, This is nobody's favorite part of this right. job except Percy because he's a sick fuck. So that is where Paul stands, and then later um, they're preparing Arlen for execution, and this is where he really has his scene, right? So he says, what do you think happens when you die? Do you think you could go back to when you were the happiest? Like, if you're Mm -hmm. legitimately sorry for everything that you've done, can you go back to when you were the happiest? And then he says when he was the happiest, and he he hopes that that's where he goes, and he says, Paul says that he believes basically that same Uh thing. And then Brutus leads Arlen down, and he's in—he's sort of in charge. He's the one calling all of the shots. He does the sponge. Um, it goes pretty smoothly, although he—he he is uh, electrocuted once. They turn the power off. They do a te- the doctor mm-hmm. does a check, and like you said, the witnesses are in folding chairs, five feet away from this. This execution, it's yeah. way too close. It may be like 10 feet. It's still too close. There's it's, That should be a yeah. separate room. No, you, know? you see it done now, uh, particularly with the chemical 
there's a small room. They're in a glass then, glass walled room, and you're in a separate observation room. And I actually room. believe that most of them are two way glass, uh-huh. so the convict sees himself, right. not the people that are there yeah. looking at him. I think that that's how it works. And I do say him because I don't know when the last time a woman was executed. It's been I don't remember. a long time. Yeah, I, I honestly don't. Uh, and so now afterwards, Paul's like, so Percy, you've seen your execution? Oh, and Percy like is poking at the body in the morgue afterwards because he's a fucker. Well, there, <laughs> yeah, there, there's something really wrong with him. But unlike, as we've said, unlike some of the past King villains, he's not a collection of ticks. No. He seems to be, there's there's something deeply rooted wrong with he him. He wants to murder someone. Right. That is what he, he wants. He wants to kill something. He wants to kill a mouse. He wants to... Yeah. He came there for the excitement of being a spectator here and wants to be a participant. Yeah, and he says, you know, I did put in that thing, but uh, I want to be out front at right. the next one. He's That's willing to I go to Briar Ridge and work there as an orderly if he can... Brutus the spot. He wants Take to Brutus the spot of, of preparing the actual person for mm-hmm. the execution. Yeah. So the next day, Dell has found the mouse again. It came into his cell. Mm-hmm. He's named it Mr. Jingles, and he's taming it. It fets, fetches this uh, wooden spool and wheels it back to him. And the guards allow him to keep Mr. Jingles as a pet. And even Percy uh, is supportive of this. He uh, suggests that they get a, the mouse a cigar box to sleep in. Now, mind you, there's motivation there. Of course there is, because he's, he's the devil. Evil. So then Paul meets with Warden Hal again, and they find out that they have a new uh, inmate coming in. William Wild Bill Wharton, who killed three people in a holdup. And Hal is super depressed, because... The doctors told him that Melinda uh, has a tumor the size of a lemon in her brain, and he can't figure out how to tell her. Hey, how about we tell people their own medical history? This was not a thing in the 30s. I know the man found everything out, and the women were lucky. No, I was going to say, there are other methods, as we recently saw in a film. No, I know. That you just don't tell them, and they'll figure it out, or they won't. Or they won't, yeah. So... Paul's still in aggravate, uh, or like uh, horrible, horrible mm-hmm. bladder pain. Right. The the urinary infection is still really bad. He um his wife, who's played by Bonnie Hunt, is like, "Well, come to bed," and she and he's like, "There's something wrong with my waterworks, and I don't want to give it to you." And I'm like, "Hey, good looking out." Now, I believe in the book there is an indication that what he has is not a urinary tract infection, but in fact an STI that he received outside of his marriage. That is not an indication here. <laughs> okay, well that's good because I really like the relationship yes. between him and his wife. Yes. Uh, and he says, "I will go tomorrow to the doctor because I can't do this." Uh-huh. anymore like uh at one point you see him coming out of the house and he is clearly in agonizing pain and of course they have an outhouse so to right. get to the bathroom yes is a trek in the middle of the night right and he is in ag- agonizing pain and he can't make it and he ends up on his knees in his front yard it's it's rough <laughs> it's real rough uh and then we are going to go get Wild Bill. And Wild Bill is at, I believe, probably Briar Ridge. He's at the mental hospital. And he appears to be 
totally drugged. He is standing stock still, he is staring into nothing, and he is drooling on himself. Now, this character is played by Sam Rockwell with some teeth. <laughs> right. The teeth. Now, is this one of Sam Rockwell's first performances, too? Like, his breakout uh, was... It could be. Um, let me see. I actually don't know his... He's very good. Yes. Everyone... No and one he's is calling it in in this movie. who is very good at being bad. Uh-huh. Like, he's always watchable uh-huh. um, in a really interesting way. Uh, hey, Markwell. What's up, buddy? I bet he's super nice because he definitely looks like a villain. <laughs> no, he's been working um, okay. since the 80s in smaller things. What was the film he did, Moon? As kids, even. That was in 2009. That film was an amazing performance by him because it's essentially him and him. He's literally beside himself. Oh, that's right, yeah. And it's a creepy film, too. Not creepy as in a horror film, but the ramifications of the movie are pretty creepy and weird. This and is really the first major thing that okay. he's done, I'd say. There's a lot of TVs and a couple of episodes of Law & Order in the early 90s. He's in um, NYPD Blue, one episode. Um and then he's got characters like Thug in Basquiat and the kid uh-huh. in Box of Moonlight. So, like, right. small small characters. So he's in this and then Galaxy Quest in 1999. And then also a, a remake of a Midsummer Night, Nights, James. Was and he then, Puck? Uh, no, he was Francis Flute. Oh, okay. Uh, and then he's in Charlie's Angels. And then Bigger and Bigger Thing. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is probably his big breakout. But And Matchstick Men. And then he played Zaphod Beeblebrox in The Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> uh, so he, yeah, this is probably the first big thing, but he'd been uh-huh. working steadily since he was pretty young. And he has a 1998 quote, I just see myself as a character actor. I'd like to be a star in the same way as Gary Oldman or John Malkovich are famous, who gets a kick to do character pieces and not act like movie stars. That's pretty much uh-huh. the, the career that he's been able to carve out for himself. So fucking... Cheers, dude. Like, good job. Uh, although, I don't love... My least favorite thing I think that he's done is his turn in MCU movies. Yes, he was in one of the Iron Man films. He Iron Man a, 2. Right. I, it was probably my least favorite. I was like, you don't... We don't... It could have been anybody. It could have been every, anybody. Yeah. You're too good for this, and I don't... Yeah. He's also a local boy. He's from San Mateo. Yeah. All right. So, they presume that he is drugged. I'm going to say this again. They presume right. that he is drugged. They ask nobody. So uh, as soon as he gets into the Green Mile, he springs to life. He surprise attacks the guards. He incapacitates Paul by kneeing him in the groin. His right. groin is already, already in a place where you don't want that and you never want that. Um, he nearly strangles Dean uh, Percy's nailed to the floor in shock. He doesn't, he just, he's sort of knocked aside and uh-huh. then is frozen by fear because he is not, and I repeat, not cut out for this job. And Brutal finally comes in and takes him out, chokes him out with his nightstick, I think. Uh, really dangerous thing to do. But <laughs> super dangerous, I don't think but anybody would have minded if he would have and, bit and the bullet just then. Before he walks in, we should say, John Coffey says, careful, boss. 
Yeah. Like he knows. He knows, like he can feel the not right coming off right. this dude. And they go, um, they, they lock him up. They knock him out and they lock him up. And then Paul is like on his knees on the ground. And he's like, you go deal with the paperwork mm-hmm. for this and you go make sure everything's okay. And um, I'm going to, stay here because he's supposed to be going to the doctor he's like i'll watch the mile while you guys are Mm -hmm. gone and then he just lays down fucking face first onto the onto the linoleum and he's just the one lone guard in the fucking death row is just laying prone on the ground because his whole situation is destroyed and john keeps going i need to talk to you i need to talk to you boss and he's like, not a good time. <laughs> it's not a good time. And he goes, that oh. scene actually has a lot of comic value. And he does. That. He goes, no, I need you to come down here. And Paul's like, I really like, don't think I can even get up. Like, And he does. He manages to get himself up mm-hmm. and walk over to Coffee Cell. And at which point he's grabbed through the bars. And Dell. <laughs> Del freaks out because Del's like, he's gonna kill him. Like, he's freaking out. Well, and they're all terrified of. Um, well, he's giant. Re- regardless he's of so the fact big. that he's seems to be harmless, that he's afraid of the dark. He's he and he speaks like a child, a, a six-year-old child. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, everyone is terrified of him because he is l- literally a giant. Yeah. So he pulls the top of Paul into the bars mm-hmm. and then grabs him in his private area, his bathing suit area. And he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm helping. And then the light pops. Mm-hmm. The, the electrical lights. The electrical light above him pops. And there's like a light. And then, and then he's healed. His easy eye is healed. Right. So he, he cures says, him by laying on of hands. Yeah. And then All he right. coughs. And these things that look like gnats that then disappear into like sort of John ash. John Hobbyons, right. Coughs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, um, and then Paul asks what happened. He says, I helped. And then he says, can I lay down? I'm real tired. I'm dog tired. That's what he always says. I'm dog tired. And he lays down on his bunk and he turns towards the wall and he like just goes to sleep or whatever. And then Paul comes home that night. And it's like, I feel so much better. And then he and his wife do it. Do it four times. So many times as he and his wife do it. See, this is what, why I'm glad Because he they has didn't... a new penis. <laughs> well, new. this is why I'm glad that they didn't include the adultery part into the relationship. Because earlier on, she's attempting to pull him upstairs. Yeah. And he's like, I and can't. And he's like, I'm not. Well, he's, he says, I'm not right. And I don't want to give you anything. Right. So that was very sweet. Which, of, good looking out, Paul. <laughs> but this is kind of when she comes on to him, she, when he comes on to her this time, she doesn't bat him away. She's actually enjoying it. Yeah, they, yeah. She never gets through dinner, basically. She yeah, no, they don't. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, the but next it's one, also neat because you rarely see people past their 30s having sex on right. screen. That's true. Although we don't A know couple. how old this couple is. Well, we have no children. Out, that we found out later yeah. that they have not they have grown children. Right, grown they children. They don't have kids in the house. So no. we don't and you know, Tom Hanks is an ageless wonder. I don't know. <laughs> I don't you know. And uh so he calls in for sick uh sick for work and goes to see um Bert Hammersmith, played by Gary Sinise. Lieutenant Dana and Forrest got together again. 
<laughs> There's a lot of reuniting of, of people who I'd been familiar with through other things, like Patricia Clarkson and uh, Bonnie Hunt. Yes. And there's other people. There's a lot of matching. Yeah, and so um, Paul's like, uh, he doesn't seem to have it in him. And Gary Sinise compares apparently all Negroes to mongrel dogs. You keep them around, even though they're not really good for anything. But once they snap, you got to put them down. And his son had been attacked by a dog that they had. Um, and he shows So, but that shows that Gary Sinise... Uh, is because, a racist asshole. Well, I mean... This was his defender. <clears throat> right. <laughs> yeah. Is that it shows... Because he formerly had John Coffey as an inmate. And yes, he Negras is what he calls them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very Southern. But what he's saying there is, uh, of course, espousing that point of view... But it shows that that character also didn't think John Coffey was guilty. He's just talking... He says, if he didn't do it, Uh some Negro did. Right. And I'm like, well, why, why, why do we think that? Like, <laughs> as it turns out, not so much. Yeah. But it's he's betraying the attitude of that's how he's rationalized the fact that he can't make sense of John Coffey raping and again, no one proved that he raped the, the no. kids. It's reminding me in that case, in that uh, instance of To Kill a Mockingbird, where Mayella Yule just claims I was raped and there was no medical evidence that she ever was because no one ever took her to a doctor. Right. But she just had to say it and it was believed. Yeah. But in this case. He, Gary Sneeze's character is also having issues believing this. Now, he does not have the advantage of knowing that... See, I didn't get that from... I, I think he was like, no, the, well, that no. big black man definitely did a crime. But he, I think, as I said, his motivation or his justification is, well, you can never predict with these people what they're going to yeah, do. Yeah, what they're going to do. Because he had his doubts, and and he took it very hard on, like, there's a neat moment there as two really good actors where Gary Sneeze is looking at Tom Hanks going, well, well, we're on the same side, kind of, aren't you? You're thinking that, but let me rest, put you at ease about your conscience, about what you're feeling about John Coffey. Mm. Um, and it was... A, See, yeah. I, I read that scene totally different. As you know. one scene, I read that scene um, totally different. I was like, this dude just wants all black men locked up. That See, is how I read that I, scene. No, I don't doubt that he wants all black men locked up. But, I mean, he seems to... But I to, don't think that he has any... I do think that... I mean, affinity in, in My interpretation was that, was that he... Not an affinity, but he real That something is rankling him about this guy. I didn't get that at all. I didn't. I, it might, be, might have been there, but I didn't get that mm-hmm. at all. I got... The, I got one black man's the same as the next, and they're all going to snap if you let them, so we might as well just lock them all up. That's what I got mm. out of that scene. Um, maybe I was just overly sensitive to the racism. <laughs> yeah, the, ra- the racism in this film, and they, they, ha- they tone it down a bit, because no one there, there's a moment, but they acknowledge it, there's a moment when Jeffrey Damon's character is worried about having to execute Bitterbuck. And he says, well, we have to get in a chaplain of their faith. Does that mean we're going to have a medicine man wagging his dick in our faces? He's like, wagging his dick? No. And right. also, this man is a Christian. And, so. Yes. And it's, you know, uh, Paul's response, no, he's a Christian. And no, wagging your dick in your face is not what medicine not, men yeah. do. Right. So there's an acknowledgement that there's a prevailing cultural attitude right. that goes along with it. And so it, the, uh, the awareness of that also makes some of what happens shocking later yeah. on. Yeah. So, as a thanks for Coffee's help, uh-huh. uh, 
Paul's wife has baked him some cornbread. Thank you. I haven't been late like that since we were in high school. Um, and she says, is the Mrs. Please? And she, he goes, oh, yes, several times. <laughs> and Dell asks for some of the cornbread um, for, for Mr. Jingles. And um, John's like, well, can I? And Paul's like, it's yours to do with as you please. And so he gives a little bit to Dell and to Mr. Jingles. And then uh, fucking Wild Bill is like, give me some of that cornbread. But he is also super racist and has used the N-word repeatedly. And uh. John looks at Paul and Paul is like, it's yours to do with as you please. He goes, I think I'm going to keep the rest of it. Paul's like, that's just fine. <laughs> um, and then he gets super pissed. And yeah, Wild Bill doesn't need anything. Yeah, like... Bill. So over the course of a couple of days, he ends up pissing on Harry. Uh-huh. And then he spits chocolate all over Brutus like he... Trades, I, he had a nickel or whatever, and he trades it to Tutu, the um, the janitor, for a moon pie? Yeah. And then he chews up the moon pie and then holds it in his mouth and then spits it all over Brutus, at which point they're like, we haven't used that restraint room in a while. <laughs> Why don't we uh, go ahead and do that? There's a, an element of there, too. Again, he has nothing to lose, so he's just going to be the doing, biggest yes. creep. Yeah. You possibly can be. And uh, so they clean it out and they uh, put him in a straitjacket and they put him in the padded room and he's like begging not for them to not do it. I'll behave and I'll be, nope. But they, they keep having to put him back in there because he's the worst. Uh, we get Dell's execution date um, and he's uh, worried about what's going to happen to Mr. Jinkles and then Brutal comes up with Mouseville, a place down in Florida that that's like a mouse circus and they'll take him there, which is very sweet. And then uh, they do a rehearsal for Dell's uh, execution while they have him go, because he doesn't have family, mm-hmm. they have him go and, <laughs> like, there's a dude who's another janitor who's like, I've been I've been cleaning your toilets for however many years I've never had to put on a suit, because they put all these people in the in this room, the visiting room, where, and then they have uh, Dell. And Mr. Jingles do a show, like a little show for them. And they convince him that he's what the governor or it's something. Like, yes, yeah. yeah, big, big, big people from the governor's office. I don't know the actual governor. And they but, just yeah. dress up a guy in yeah. a suit. And... Yeah, and then there's a bunch of the wardens and stuff there mm-hmm. um, to sort of keep him chill. And uh, Percy is going to run this one, and hoping that once it's done, he'll get the fuck out. And uh, they, Percy seems to be doing what Percy needs to do. And um, while he's not paying attention, he's walking too close to Wild Bill's uh, cell and he uh, is grabbed. Uh, and uh, Wharton sort of torments him a little bit before letting him go and Percy pisses himself. Now, the, the, we should bring up the nature of this as... He sexually abuses him. He grabs him and f- like grabs his genitals. Oh, and does starts... he? Okay, I couldn't tell yeah, what was going on. He grabs him by the genitals, and he and... does say he'd rather uh, fuck his ass than somebody else's, like than a right. than a but, than a woman or whatever. Like he, and also, well, the way that he does it is that he grabs him and he says, "Oh, well, I've been calling you Limp Noodle, but it looks like you got a you know, oh, gotcha. you got something going for old Wild Bill." Oh. So he not only like grabs him and sort of sexually abuses him briefly, yeah. 
he also taunts him about his masculinity, which is something that's, I'm sure, a sore point being that For him, he's yeah. the smallest and most helpless person on this block. Right, and we've already seen how he's not able to He's not muster. able to react to, yeah. you know. Uh, later, Mr. Jingles is running between cells, and Percy walks up and stomps on him because he's a dick. And poor Dal is screaming and yeah. so upset. And uh, John Coffey says, give, give me him, there might still be time. And Paul picks him up and hands it to him. And everybody else is like, what are you doing? And Paul's like, I mean, it can't hurt. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> Paul also has uh, some knowledge that the rest of them don't some, have. Right, exactly. Right. So he puts him in his hands and he kind of blows. Like he's blowing up a balloon. Yeah. And um, there's a light that comes to them in the shine. There's a popping of the light bulbs again. He, this dude goes through a lot of light bulbs. And then uh, he I, releases I another sort of cloud, and every, all of the um, guards see it, uh, except Percy. Percy's not there. And uh, Mr. Jingles runs um, back into Dell's cell, and he's okay. And... Paul confronts Percy and gives him an ultimatum. He's like, you're going to fucking, once Del's dead, like, the mouse is fine, good as new, and uh, you're going to leave as soon as Del's uh, execution is done, or we're going to go ahead and uh, talk about your mistreatment, and I don't even think the wife of the governor is going to be able to do shit about it. Uh, And then the night of the execution arrives, um, Del gives Mr. Jingles to Paul, and Paul's like, I cannot have a mouse sitting on my shoulder while I, in front of all of these witnesses <laughs> while I am in charge of your execution. And John says, well, I'll take him. Uh, and Del says, that's all right. Uh, and then Del goes down. They've shaved his head. Uh, he sits in front of the audience. Uh, he asks forgiveness for his crimes and asks Paul not to forget about Mousefell. And then Percy, because Percy's a fucking asshole, it says Mousefell's not real. He just uh, they just made it up to keep him quiet and keep him calm, which is so which was up. absolutely unnecessary to tell a person on their way out. Now mm-hmm. what we have to mention is that um when Paul was grabbed by Wild Bill, he urinates himself. Oh Percy. When Percy, Percy was grabbed, yeah. Uh yeah. And he was grabbed by Wild Bill and he pees himself. Yeah. Is that Oh, Dell had laughed. Dell laughs and does not let it go. Nope. And he's actually pretty funny. Make water in his pants like a little baby. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. He, just he really on. gives it to him, which Dell deserved. Well, Del, he just killed his mouse, so this is his revenge too, right? Yes, yeah. So, yeah, it's it, everything and, comes together in a really bad way. And Percy doesn't what the sponge he dips it on the outside like he drops it down on the outside of the mm-hmm. bucket just uh, out of sight right out of, yeah he, he wants to see what will happen and he wants to punish Del one more time which is wild because this man is literally three minutes from death like right. what what how petty what else can you get how from petty him? do you have to fucking be and uh, Paul notices the sponge is dry too late. He's looking and there's no drips and the um, his shoulders are dry and usually when they clamp the hat on it squishes the sponge right. and so there's liquid, right? And he goes to, as soon as he flips the switch, Paul notices and he goes to turn it off and, and Brutal's like, you can't stop it now. Like, right. it's we are too far in so we just have to see it through and it's heinous. Now there's a woman in the crowd, one of the characters that we don't meet again, who is going on about how the man should be fried. Yeah. 
and she it just seems to yeah, me to be probably the the mother of right. whoever was right. killed and by never, him. Because or, in this version of the story, we're not told. We don't know. Right. Yeah. But and it definitely feels like a mom's anger, right? Like, so, but what happens over the course of it is that she wants to see him killed, but when the killing happens and it doesn't have the safeguards of this wet sponge, and who knew? Well, we knew that, of yeah. course, we were told it was going to make you all the difference in the world. There yeah. is a really graphic scene of the guy's head catching on it's fire. The, the whole thing, yeah, he it goes up, horrible. and it lasts so long right. because the electricity is not going where it needs to go, so his body isn't. Mm-hmm. Shocked in the yeah. way that it needs to be shocked to die. It's not in any way worse. So this is cruel and unusual punishment. His yeah. head is on fire. He's still alive. Co- jo- we see in those cells, John right. Coffey is crying because he can feel what's happening. Right. And fucking Wild Bill is like whooping and hollering and super excited because right. you know he's and a when, lunatic. When when uh, John Coffey is experiencing this, he's holding on to Mister. He's holding Mister Jingles, who. Pops out of his hands and, and takes runs off away. Like I cannot, because it probably moves right. through him a little bit. Because he's a being empathic, he's absorbing yeah. or trying to absorb some of the suffering. And then we see like the 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 onlookers trying to get out, like because yeah. there's fire happening, there's smoke, the smell is right. horrible. Which is why it's puzzling to me that anybody would want to be in that room because I can't imagine that it doesn't. Even smell. on the best, right on the best days. Uh, Something's cooking, and yeah. I just I can't imagine that anybody would want to smell that. Yeah, and for, then of course, Percy's Percy tries to avert his eyes, and uh-huh. Paul grabs his face and makes him watch. Right. Like you did this, and then um, Del finally dies, and he's put out with a fire extinguisher. And then Percy claims, "I didn't know the sponge had to have water on it." Motherfucker, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, Upon which Brutus punches him in the face, <laughs> which is the only appropriate response. Uh, Paul pulls him back, says, what's done is done. Percy isn't worth fighting over. Hal comes in and is like, the smell's not coming out for five years. What the fuck am I going to tell people? Pers- and, what the and blue Paul, fuck? That was my, like, yeah. what ex- blue fuck? I've never heard this one before. And Paul just calmly looks at him and goes, it was a successful execution. And Hal goes, what the fuck was successful right. about that? And he goes, the prisoner is dead. Yeah. Kind of showing how fucked up the death penalty is. Yeah. Oh, there's a, there's a definite message. To this <laughs> right? Bill. Like, um, they go back and Paul finds that fucking Wild Bill has destroyed his whole bunk. He has torn the fluff out of his bedding. I'm like, you're going to want that. What are you doing? And uh, is singing in celebration and he's threatened, or he shuts up when he's threatened with solitary confinement again for the rest. He's like, I'm going to put you in there and I'm never going to take you out. I think it's the only effective deterrent for him because he seems to really... And it isn't really a deterrent because he keeps fucking acting up. And then he goes and talks to John and Mr. Jingles um, has fled and John doesn't think he's going to come back um, and then Paul and uh, his wife go visit Hal and Melinda and then we see yeah we're introduced to Melinda she's Patricia Clarkson mm-hmm. she's wasting away and Hal is super depressed and sad she's losing her memory she's got bad days where she like swears he says like she never swore before and now like the things that come out of her mouth well, I don't being that we understand. just heard blue thought come out of his mouth yeah. I think we know where she picked up the well, language well maybe um and Paul says 
And then Paul in, invites every, all the other guards over f to dinner to, at his house and says, I can't stand what's happening to Hal's wife. I want to try and get John to heal her. And they're like, well, sh we can't get her into the, like, she's sick. We can't get her into the mile. And he's like, I, Hal wouldn't allow that anyways. Right. I'm talking about a jailbreak. So this is a caper movie yeah. now for Now we, we've minutes. got a little caper. <laughs> and Paul says, brutal and hairy uh, would be the ones that came with. Uh -huh. uh, brutal is like only if we've got guns because we can't, mm -hmm. like he's too big. We can't do anything if he tries to escape. They say that uh, Dean needs to stay back with plausible deniability because he's the one with kids. Brutal is um, a bachelor uh -huh. and Harry and Paul's kids are all grown and out of the house. So right. if they lose their job, it's just them. It's not. Yeah you know, kids as well. But Dean's got two little ones, and so they don't want to put his job in jeopardy. And he's like, I don't think God would put a gift like that in the hands of a child killer. Like, I just, he and does not it seems not like in that it. case, they also have their, you know, their apprehensions about the, um, it's interesting what, what I find, and this is why it goes together with that other scene, this theme that everyone's uneasy with him, and in this case, the guards there know that something is up. They're like, yeah. Well, he did kill somebody. Did he kill somebody? You know, it doesn't like, seem like he could have killed somebody, but he's definitely here because he killed somebody. Right. Let's all have a conversation cool. about maybe we don't believe that he killed somebody. Yeah. And yeah. it seems in this scene that Tom Hanks' character is the first to actually just come out and say what people are thinking. Right. And it's it, it's got to be hard because they can't do anything about it. Right. They're going to have to kill this man. Yes. That is their job. Yeah. So to to admit to yourself that this man didn't kill anybody right. and yet you're going to murder him. There's a construct we all have to accept is, in order to sleep at night, yeah. which is all these people deserve it. Deser yes. And oh. so our guilty conscience is, is soothed by the fact that we're as humane as possible to them, which is why Percy is such a a fly in the ointment, so to speak, because yeah. he is not human towards them at all. Yeah. But now here's this problem. Here's a guy who we know is literally a miracle of God, as he puts it, yeah. And we're going to, you know, that's going to happen. But anyhow, yeah. that's, that's yeah. getting ahead of that's the... That's getting ahead of it. So mm. they carry out the plan. They're going to drug Wharton. Uh -huh. Paul brings in some drinks, offers one that's drugged to Wharton, puts him to sleep. The others uh, sort of attack Percy and they're like, "For this is what you did. This is right. for what you did to Dell." Uh -huh. And they put him in a straitjacket and they lock him in the solitary room. Mm. And I thought they were going to drug both of them. I was like, what's this now, what was uh, Percy, who at the time is, is uh, reading a Tijuana Bible? <laughs> yes, he is. He's got, I think, the Briar Ridge like handbook, uh -huh. and then he's reading a dirty, a little dirty graphic novel. Uh, what was her name? Lottie Lotta loves a pipe or something. I, I, it's I really interesting. Really and they're like, "We're putting you in solitary as retribution," and so they lock him up, uh, and it's just so that they don't uh -huh. see him leaving. Right? Dean has memorized the cover story. Uh, John Coffey went crazy and attacked the guard, so they put him in the padded room, which would explain any sounds coming from mm -hmm. the padded room. Well, the rest are at the medical facility dealing with the wounds that they yeah. were inflicted by this giant man. Uh, and then they open up John's cell, and he is excited, uh, actually, of going for a ride outside and helping Melinda. It's nighttime, we should say. Right. Uh, on their way out, Wharton wasn't, and Wild Bill wasn't entirely out, and he grabs John, and John finds out some information. And we'll get back to that later. He's horrified by what happens when they have skin, skin contact. Uh, and then Morton passes out. So Wild Bill passes out. They end up getting to Hal's house after they walk out and 
you know, John's looking up at the stars and he sees Cassie, the lady in the rocking chair. Right. And you had mentioned that... Um, this is a, a really important figure when you were uh, a runaway slave escaping north. You followed the stars so that in the African-American community of people at the time, they were very familiar with, with all of the constellations. Because yeah. it led you the direction north. So that scene where they have a prison break yeah, and he finds the lady with the star is actually a really interesting callback to yeah. another time about, or a, a symbolic representation of something that happened earlier, I guess, in history. Right, and probably, and, and not, I mean, this would have been his grandparents or his parents, right? right? Yeah. Um, and uh, they're like, I mean, it's cool that you like the stars, but we gotta go. <laughs> like, and well, they, he wants to smell the earth. Yeah, he picks up a handful of earth. So this is—he's he, lovely. He's yeah. Just, yeah. So they get to Hal's house, and Hal uh-huh. comes out with a gun, and um, he thinks that there's a riot or an escape going on, mm-hmm. and Apollo's like, "No, just trust us. Just trust. Like, uh-huh. you've known me for a long time. Just trust me." And John goes upstairs and gets very close to Melinda's face and she's like swearing and she's real frail and she like is laying on the bed in a way that shows that she can't really, she doesn't Uh, have a lot of movement. And he like sort of reverse mouth to mouths her and sucks something out of her. And there's a bright light. I think there's an earthquake. Yeah, there's an earthquake. It was a big one. And then he breaks the connection and falls down coughing and they're like, cough it up like you did with the mouse, cough it up, Mm -hmm. cough it up. But he doesn't. He, He it's in him. He doesn't yeah. cough out whatever it is. Uh, Melinda sits up. She looks a thousand times better. The uh, makeup on this in yeah. the scene is actually very good. And she says uh, she doesn't remember anything that happened uh, before uh, up to her X-ray. And so she's like, "What they, did the X-ray find anything?" And then Hal is like, "Collapse collapses mm. at how." much she's changed in the last, like, minute. Right, yeah. And <laughs> um, there's a couple of things that we talked about with this. John Coffey is typically kind of timorous. He's afraid of the dark. Yes. He cries a lot. The minute he sees somebody he can help... He's, he's got all the confidence in the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's literally just sort of sweeping people aside he's like, in a polite way. Like, I got no, this. No, this it, is my job. This is like, what I do. And also there's a, a visual callback, I think, to The Exorcist. When we first see her lying in the bed, she's sprawled all out. She's haggard. She's gray. She's mm. swearing at them. Yeah. So it's almost like he's performing an exorcism, taking yeah. this out of her. But there's a, and I think that that's accentuated by photographing the scene very much like the scenes in The Exorcist, where the Reagan girl is lying in bed with uh-huh. her clothes hitched up and right. growling and the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and she is. She swears at them, and right. um, and then he, she gives uh, him a Saint Christopher pendant. Mm-hmm. And then they go back to the prison. John is still super sick from the uh, from the uh, absorbing the evil absorbing or whatever the thing, it is. and then not getting rid of it. Uh-huh. Dean uh, says that Wild Bill's almost up, so they quickly put John back in his cell. They release Percy. They're like, "Okay, you're not going to mention this to anybody. We're not going to mention this to anybody. You're going to put your fucking thing through, and we're going to be done. Right? We're everything's, everything's even. We're going to. Yep. And. Uh, as Percy walks past John's cell, he grabs him through the bars, holds his face close to his, and breathes those spores directly so into... So John disgorges whatever yeah, that is whatever into, that was, into Percy. Into Percy. And Percy is in a total daze and walks over to Wild Bill's cell, stares at him for a while. Wild Bill gets mouthy and is like, what are you looking at? Da-da-da-da. And then Percy... 
fucking pulls out his gun and shoots him now, a whole bunch of times. There's a question I had at this. Do you think that Percy saw what happened to The way that I Wild read Bill this did. scene is uh-huh. that in addition to whatever sickness, uh-huh. as I think if, I think Percy probably has cancer now. Right. <laughs> I think that that's probably yeah, yeah. a thing. I think actually John put his own consciousness mm-hmm. into Percy. Um, and yeah, I think Percy knows. Because there's tears or, 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 rolling down his face. Yeah, when he, which is why I don't uh, think it's Percy. I, like, I almost think it's John Coffey that pulled that trigger. Like a puppet almost. Like, yes. Like, I need you to go do mm-hmm. this. Like, and, um, and he, and Percy's still super out of it um, while Bill is dead. Like, he's Get six bullets in his gut. Mm-hmm. There's in 1935. That's a death sentence. Right. And Paul asks John, "Why? Why? Why? Why did you do that?" And he said, "They were both bad men, and he punished them for it." And he says, "You need to see this for yourself." And he sticks out his hands, and despite Paul, the, the everybody else is like, "Don't, don't do touch him." <laughs> and Paul so is like, "I'm going to touch him. Yeah. I'm doing it." And he sees the memories. Um, and what he sees is that Wharton was on the farm with those two little girls that uh-huh. John tried to save, and he's the one that abducted them. And he told each one, "If you love your si- like if you yell, I'm gonna hurt mm-hmm. your sister. You love your sister, you're gonna keep quiet." And he told both of them that. And he says he killed them. He killed those girls with their love for each other, and that's how it always is. Right. And how comes down the police arrive. Um, Percy's catatonic uh, house like I'm going to cover for you guys as much as you ca- as I can uh-huh. but is this connected to what happened at my at house, my house? Right. and Paul's like nope no. <laughs> we're going to go ahead and call that a no because uh, he doesn't need that on him either he doesn't and, and it would punish John uh-huh. When he doesn't even need to be brought into this. How the hell would you explain this to anybody? Yeah, right no, now, right? exactly. yeah, so, no, it's, it's like nope. he, he absorbs the evil, bad stuff and he spit out the evil, bad guy who then. And then shot Percy's the other guy. dropped off at Briar Ridge so that. Uh, got that there transfer went through. <laughs> right. And then, um, then we're sort of in the end game, right? So mm-hmm. Paul knows that John Coffey is innocent of the crime for which the state of Louisiana is about to kill him. And through him, he Uh will be the instrument that the state of Louisiana uses to kill this man. And he also knows that this man is a miracle of God. Yeah. And how do I reconcile killing a miracle of God? And John is like, uh, I don't want to live anymore because everything sucks. Well, John is so empathic that he can't, you know, they're looking at ways. They're, there's a brief discussion of what can we do to get him out of here because we know that this is not what he did. Right. And especially Paul now having empathically shared this vision right. of the fact that he's completely innocent. Like he knows yeah, that right. Wild Bill, who has now been executed for the crime, mm-hmm. is the one who did this crime. John right. did not do anything except try and take it back. And now he understands he tried to heal those girls and he couldn't and was found failing at the job of healing those girls. Right, that is how it was he too was far found. gone, as we learned. He can do it for a, a minute after they're dead. It might be, okay. it might right. be soon enough, but... But yeah. what I get from... I mean, this is... 
And it's a good, again, they're really great performances. The guilt on his face. Yeah. Is a, he, well, he's like, how am I going to stand before God right. when I'm at judgment and God. explain what I, I, should, I, I just say I was doing my job and it's, right. that's a, hey, Nazis. Right. <laughs> Like 1935, y'all just doing your jobs, huh? Right. This there, there's a and he's like, do you yeah. want me to let you go and see yeah. how far you can get? And John's like, I this world well, isn't for me. He's and it's a seven foot much. tall man, black man in the south. He's not going to get anywhere. He's not going to get anywhere. And the fact that he's so I'm guileless. like, you going to drive him to Canada because that's about right. the only chance he's got. He's so utterly guileless and incapable yeah. of deception that you couldn't get him that no. far out of the state without people finding him. Or he would trust the wrong people. It's it's very much that way. Yeah. Um, and so they do go ahead and the last um, execution that they all perform is coffee. The family's there. And mm-hmm. that is wild to me because they are, they shake his hand. They're all, like, all of the guards are crying right. at this um and and you never hear from the family just going, what the fuck is going yeah. Like, what is your problem? And that was a little surprising to me because the, we focus in on the guards uh-huh. and John. Uh, John doesn't want them to put the um, hood over his face because it's dark and he doesn't want to go in the dark. And so they don't. Um, they put the sponge on him. They put the electricity on him. And then we don't see him die. We see Paul watching him die. No, it's important to note he also doesn't want the hood. No, I said that. Okay. Yeah, they I'm don't. Sorry. He don't. They don't put okay. the hood over his face because he doesn't want to die in the dark. Uh, and uh, Paul, before they uh, activate the electricity, he steps up. He shakes his hand, and he, he, we hear John's voice saying again, "He killed them with their love." And then this is the smoothest execution we see. Actually, uh-huh. of the three, right. they don't have to do it twice. It goes smoothly. He um, he had taken the St. Christopher medal because it's metal. Right. Couldn't be on him. And he puts it back on his body. Um, and then we cut back to the elderly Paul who's telling the story to Elaine mm-hmm. in the um, assisted living facility. And he says that he and Brutus both left the Green Mile right after that. They couldn't. That was the last execution that they did. Uh, they both went to a youth corrections facility. Um, and Lane's like, that's quite a story, but she doesn't really believe it. And she's, like, doing the math. And he's like, yeah. Uh, Paul mentioned that his son had grown up in 1935, so he should be way older than he appears. And he's like, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, let's go for a walk. <laughs> and they walk out to the shed, the shed, shed that we've seen at the right. beginning. And we find Mr. Jingles who had come out after John Coffey's death, I guess, and Paul has been uh, taking him around with him since then. Um, Paul is 108 years old, and he thinks that when Coffey transferred some of himself, probably not the healing, although the Mm -hmm. healing might have done a little bit, but when he showed him, because he said, I have to put a little of you, me in you, so that you can see what Wild Bill did. At that point, he was basically infected with life. It's the same thing. He thinks it wasn't even Jingles being brought back to life that did this to Mr. Jingles, but that whatever uh, upset John was in when he was feeling Dell's horrible death Execution, right. was 
transferred accidentally to Mr. Jingles. Mm. So Mr. Jingles is a mouse. Mice live uh, not very long. This mouse is uh, what? So in 1935, Mm -hmm. he was 44, which is still real young to have adult kids, but in the 30s, I guess it wasn't. No, if not if he started Uh, at 19 or 20. So he was born in 1891. Uh So this movie takes place in the year that it was released then. So Uh it takes place in 1998. That's the thing. I didn't know if we were contemporaneous. So that mouse is, what, like 60-something, 70-something years old? Yeah. Uh, And he's like, "Um, if Mr. Jingles has lived this long, how long am I going to live? And he says, like, you know... I've seen a lot of amazing things. Also, everyone has died. My wife died. My kids died. All my friends are dead. (laughs) I'm going to see your death. And I don't know how long I'm going to live. And that is my penance, maybe, for killing God's miracle. And then we end with Elaine's funeral. Sure enough, Mm -hmm. he outlives her. And he doesn't think he's immortal, but he does not. He's like, we each owe a death, so I'm going to mm. die, but I don't know what well, that's going to be. The, the joy of living is moved, is gone on. You know, yes, he, he no longer has out. it. It's yeah. it, He doesn't have it. He's not morbid about dying, but he just, he, the longer he lives, the more he thinks about what happened and how he can't bear it. Yeah. And then he says, there are no exceptions, but oh God, sometimes the Green Mile seems so long. And then we see, we close on Mr. Jingle sleeping, and I'm always like, is it going to stop breathing? No, no, is he's breathing. I, ch- no, I was watching very like, carefully. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a weird thing mm-hmm. to end on. And then that's the end of the movie. Y'all, it took us a long, it took us half the time of the movie to get through the movie. That's the movie. It's very good. It's very good. It's very big. It's very Dickensian. There's lots and lots and lots of characters, um, lots of villains. So I really, I feel, and the fact that it was released in a serial form also reminds me of Dickens. This is him harking to that time and actually creating something very much uh, apart, like it has all the social commentary and all the noble characters and all the not-so-noble characters that a Dickens novel has. If you read something like Great Expectations of David mm-hmm. Copperfield, you get all of that. Bleak yeah. House, which is my favorite. Yeah. But. Yeah, so, uh, and, and small, right? It mm-hmm. it's really takes place all on the mile. Well, more or less. And, I mean, you know, and a house house. We, we, <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, I think, because it's also in that respect, like a stage play, there's a lot of really good drama. They cast, yeah. uh, they have a first-rate cast. And we're continuing in the Stephen King doom. We've uh-huh. got Michael Clark Duncan passed away at the age of 54. Right. He was engaged to Omarosa. Hey, everyone. That's a little weird piece of information. <laughs> and so, yeah, we have another tragic early death. Um, he was also big into martial arts. He kept running into him in the martial arts community. Uh, he used to go to... I guess probably to help his joints, because I've got it. Because yeah. he, was he wasn't... He wasn't as some big tall, as but... this character is, right. but he was a big. Those arms are his arms. Mm-hmm. Like that's. Not... <laughs> yeah, this, this is not a, a, a suit. Yeah, he was six foot them. five, and um, yeah, very. And he was just getting better. Right. Like he was a he was great, and he was just getting better. He was a blue belt in 
Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yes, you, you, so you would see him occasionally ringside at the old uh, Ultimate Fighting Championship matches. He'd be sitting there, kind of like you know, giving thumbs up to people. He really he loved talking to the fighters. When he passed on, there was a weird martial arts involved thread with people going, "He used to drop by my class, and he used uh-huh. to watch us, and he used to do this, and he was such a great guy." And sign autographs, even though he was a regular type person who just liked hanging out with them. It was it's he apparently was a really nice guy. He put on weight. Yes, to play kingpin. To play kingpin, which is wild. <laughs> which, uh, and I didn't realize that he had made really he'd made a good enough friends with Bruce Willis to get the recommendation for this part. Yeah, Bruce Willis. He was he's in four movies with Bruce Willis, and yeah, Bruce right. Willis was the he's sort of a champion and for him. As we know, Bruce Willis is kind of a prickly guy. Yeah. So th- I, I have this feeling that he was a person that was very lovable. Right. Like, that smile is genuine. Yeah. That's his smile, right? They gave him weird small teeth. There was a lot of teeth work. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's, like, one guy that does teeth. Uh-huh. He's, like, in Germany or something, and this is his specialty, and the the teeth on Rockwell and the uh-huh. teeth on Michael Clark Duncan in this movie are, like, doing a lot of work, really. He uh-huh. had these tiny teeth, this big dude, so- tiny teeth, like he still had little kid teeth. Like, he'd never gotten his adult teeth. <laughs> and well, they certainly fit the character. Th- it might be that his head was supposed to be so big to, uh-huh. lo- to make normal teeth dwarf in his mouth. Or, yes, this thing where... So apparently, this is a weird trivia thing that IMDb is telling me that Duncan supposedly gave $5 to anybody who recognized him on the street and knew what his full name was. <laughs> <laughs> I am not Samuel Jackson. <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't Samuel Jackson. It was Ving Rhames oh, at the okay. time, who was the other giant muscular black guy with a bald head. And for a while, I had a roommate who for a while could not, like, isn't that the guy from, uh, no, no, that's not the guy from The Green Mile. That's the guy from Mission Impossible. Or isn't that the guy from Pulp Fiction? No, no, no. That's Michael. That's not Michael Clark Duncan. That's Ving Rhames. And so for a while, they were getting confused with each other because you could only have one giant bald one black giant man at one time. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, and really briefly, so we don't, because I know we've gone on for a while today, um, to address the problematic point, the magical Negro. Yeah. I mean, we have to sort of touch on it even briefly. Yeah. Um, this felt not as... Str- <sighs> it's hard because it's the whole of the like right it's the whole it's the it's the whole it's the heart of the the uh, a magical negro is the beating right. heart of this movie <laughs> so it's hard to criticize it and still like the movie but it's criticizable it's criticizable i felt less offended because i f- i felt as if he was trying to make a point with making john coffee a black man in the South, that he wouldn't have gotten a fair chance. He would never have gotten, especially someone who was not able to advocate for himself verbally. it makes a logical choice if you're going to make a point about the unfairness of the judicial system and the way some people are oppressed and some people aren't, that you would make him a black man. Yeah. Um, Especially in this particular time. And there's also a sense that he's hinting at a bigger parallel by calling him J.C., Right. Right. And the fact that no one knows where he came from. There's, Nobody, there's, all these there's no history. He has he no history. He suddenly appears. He has these things. He gives himself up. Yeah. Um, and there is something to the actual criminal being the white man. Right. right? 
so, so as much as I'm like, there are a lot of white people on this. But I think that row. he, I'm not sure the other way that he would have made this point, because it obviously would have been an other, I think, taking this part. If you had made the savior character a white man, that would have been kind of problematic too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially in the South. So there, there's this, I'm not sure how else to do it. I don't think to me, at least the film presentation, because I haven't read the book, um, it seemed to me less problematic and more just really sympathetic. There's a lot of great stuff to the movie, and, and as a movie, it's actually a great movie. It's a genuinely great film. Yeah. Yeah, so. Frank Darabont's really coming into his own here. Right. I'm trying to think the last time we saw Frank Darabont in this season. I'm going to go look. I thought it was um, The Shawshank Redemption. Is that the last time? Let me he just makes right. movies in prison. <laughs> Let's see. And he wrote the screenplay for this as well and did a nice job. Um, though I do think a lot of it is taken from the book. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's the last thing he directed. Mm-hmm. So it, he went straight from the Shawshank Redemption to the Green Mile. And I think that he learned a lot in that four years. And it's not like the Shawshank Redemption was... I mean, that was a great film, too, but this one had... Yeah, but the direction of it was not great. And I wonder how... like, Because we talked about in the Shawshank Redemption, like mm-hmm. um, Morgan Freeman having to throw that baseball right. for a whole day. Like, I'm hoping that he got better. <laughs> well, I'm sure that he did, yeah. <laughs> and sort of more trusting in his crew, or uh-huh. in his cast. Like, hire the people that know what the fuck they're well, doing and then let the them do The old Hollywood it. adage, the cast is 90%. You cast the film well, then you don't have to worry about a lot because they will bring out all those things that you really want to. Yeah. As a filmmaker, you don't have to do the uh, as much work if yeah. the cast is really carrying the weight for you. And here, he had an amazing cast. And also, these people were not unrecognizable at the time. I think, no. except for probably Sam Rockwell and some of the, you know, Michael Clark Duncan and Doug Hutchison, is Hutchison, it? Hutchison, yeah. That they were kind of recognizable faces, but they weren't, this kind of put them really in the public eye, for better or for worse in some cases. So there's a couple of things um, that were changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's set in 1935, depicting executions in Louisiana being carried out by electrocution, but they were hanging uh-huh. at that point until 1940. Um, I think it, I don't think that we need to see the lynching of a black man. No. I think that's why they changed it. Mm. Um, they also uh, apparently the prison would have been segregated at this point as well. So they wouldn't have been on the same death row. (laughs) You segregate them before they die because (laughs) it's just... The other thing that people say, while racism is shown in the film, even Uh though the guards were not likely college-educated men, there's virtually no racist speech. And it is likely they would have been throwing that N-word around. Um, But once again, we don't need it. We don't well, need I, it. I think we've seen that. I remember having the conversation with a school teacher when I worked for Oakland Public, and uh, where th- she felt and I felt that we've just seen far too many black men in chains being, gar- you know, th- yeah. that that scene has been done too many times. Yeah, and we don't need that. The same way that I feel about uh, rape in a film. 
okay, we've seen all through the 60s and 70s as a, a guy who watches a lot of film, the rape or threat of rape was carried out in half the Westerns and most yeah. of the horror films. And, yeah. And so uh, my turning point was the weekend that I think I've discussed here with you about watching three films, one right after the other, where there was a rape scene, which was just an excuse to have a woman having clothes torn from her before the hero comes in and rescues her. Right. And so, was, and the use of a rape of a woman to motivate a man. Right. Like, could we stop that? Yeah. Please. <laughs> like, could we just stop that? We don't need to see it anymore. We're all aware that it's there. Yeah. But we don't need to keep seeing it. We don't need to having. I don't think I need to see these guys be racist necessarily. I also will say that I believe it's my head canon mm-hmm. that David Morse's character Brutal is a gay man. <clears throat> He's a you know, 40-something-year-old bachelor. Right. Uh, I think I believed it in the book. I don't think it's ever expressed in any way, mm-hmm. um, but that is, that is, that's my head <laughs> There's a, there's a, a reading for it that also follows the same thing that mm-hmm. one of the characters, and we'll get back to that, I guess, when we go back to it, because yep. in the recent remake, that's made explicit. Somebody takes it and goes, well, you can read it this way, and so this, this is how we this are is reading it. Perfectly yes. valid reading of yeah. this character. Yeah. So, so overall, how do you feel? Oh, I love this movie. Yeah. But uh, I I managed to not cry while we were watching it uh-huh. because I was doing cross stitch. So I was not looking at the screen most of it's, the time. The performances in this film are amazing. It is hard not to get choked up at several points during it. Yeah. It really does, and it's not. It earns all of that. It does. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, so next week, guess mm-hmm. what we're watching? Do you know? Do you know? Do I don't know, know what we're know. watching next week. Storm of the Century, oh, which I, I have never seen, so I, I am excited about I have only seen this it. once. I really enjoyed it. It is beautiful to look at. Yeah. It's the closest I ever want to get to snow, <laughs> frankly. Okay. Oh, right. It's a, that's the type of storm. It's a snowstorm? Yes. Okay. Um, and so it's beautiful to look at on film. Uh, what I loved about this movie was that they used a lot of sort of practical effects and so it does not have that weird CGI kind of... Mm, okay. Well, let's um, not get too... Do you have anything to recommend? No. I saw a film that I hated so much, I don't want to recommend it. Well, we watched two things. Okay, which was... Gretel and Hansel. Was Hansel and Gretel. One. Oh, okay, Gretel and Hansel, which I forget because we recorded this off our regular schedule. Off of our schedule. We and have not. that is a really wonderful film. It's not going to be for everybody because it's not... It doesn't take place in an actual... It's taken out of... It's ahistorical. So it's not a period piece the way that you'd think it would be. But it winds up being a beautifully designed, very creepy and unsettling movie. I say it's The Witch Meets Tarsem Singh. Yes. And that's a good description because it's very, very odd and very strange. And I forget the actress's name playing... Sophia Lillis. Sophia Lillis. She, we will talk about when we get to it as well, because she plays Baby Bev. And she's really good. And in this film, she has some wonderful moments. There's a moment where she talks to mushrooms. That's very endearing and sweet, where she is, has this like full. And she's all. First of all, she's only five feet tall. I didn't oh, realize really? how small she was. I got the impression she was, she was tall. She's very long. Looking. She is. Uh, she's only five feet tall, so that's uh-huh. pretty wild. And then um, also, she. Um, She's only 17, so she's Hopefully, an actual child. As Orson Welles would say, remember that name. <laughs> you know, I expect big things from this person. But she was very, very good in it. So Here's a that's fun a recommendation. Uh, headline. Uh, 
The Thicket, Sophia Lillis, Numi Rapace, and Charlie Plummer join Peter Dinklage in Thriller. I will watch that. Okay. <laughs> we will watch that. So, yeah, I thought, um, and, and I, we didn't know anything going into it. Yes. That's fine. Go in blind. Do that. It is a weird mainstream art house, very strange. Um, eat well before you see this movie. It's not a movie. Yeah, you there, don't want to be munching there is a, this film. It reminds me, I think, of Ravenous and that it's a film that might put you off of your appetite for a little while. All food forever. Um, no. <laughs> yes, it, it took a while for me to go, I think I'm going to enjoy this meal. Yeah. But it's actually a really well-made film um, with a pedigree, too. So what was your recommendation if, if you saw something that you liked? The Good Place, finish The Good Place, watch the whole Good oh, Place. Yeah, it's so good, y'all. I cried a lot. The Good Place wrapped up two weeks ago of the, the, as of the time of this recording. So now you can watch the whole thing. <laughs> so We were on time for something, finally. Yes, we can um, you, you watch, yeah, just, just, if you haven't started mm. it, watch it all now. Just watch it all the way through. You will enjoy it. You could watch it in a day. It's not very yeah. long. It's like 13 episodes per season, and those are half-hour episodes except the last one. Like, it's, yeah. you can... You could do it in a weekend if you wanted to. You don't need to, but uh, it's wonderful and great, and I loved it very much. So I would recommend it to all of the peoples, including you peoples. Uh, so next week, Storm of the Century. Now, are we going to do this in parts? Because it is... We will watch part one. Let's get to the end all of right. part one and see where we're at. Okay. This will be fun, because I really enjoyed that one. Yeah. So that is what we are doing. Part one of Storm of the Century next next week. If you have questions, comments, concerns, email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com or tweet at us at latecomerspod. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. At, you can just Google Latecomers Podcast in Facebook or you can just search in the search bar. You all know how Facebook works. I remind you to take your medicine. And we remind you... Better late than never. 